Almighty God, we praise you. You are holy, holy, holy. And, oh, precious God, you dwell in a high and holy place, in heaven above. Indeed, O oh Lord, you are so high and holy that there is no one like you. And we pray this morning as we look at your word that you would show us and awaken us to eternal realities or to where you are in heaven. And also, O oh Lord, where all those will go who do not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. O oh, precious God, please be with us this morning. Help us to understand your word. As the psalmist said, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your law. Indeed, O oh Lord, your word is good and righteous and upright, instructing the simple. And we pray, O oh God, teach us your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be looking at, as I said, Luke 16, starting at verse 19. Let me read for us. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of God. Well, this morning we'll be looking at this um, passage here, this parable, as I continue my way through uh, the parables that Jesus told in the, in the New Testament. And we'll see here in this parable that there's a great separation between two men, and you, I'm sure you notice that as we, as we read through that, that passage. There's this great separation, one in this life, and one in the next. One is a rich man, and another is a poor man, Lazarus. And this passage that we have here is situated at the end of a sequence of parables that Jesus told. In chapter 15, in verses 8 to 10, Oh, and you'll notice that these parables often have a particular focus on money and different facets that, that Jesus brings out. 
And the first is the parable of the lost coin in in chapter 15, verses 8 to 10. And what is precious to this woman is this lost coin that she has to find and will do anything she has to find that missing coin. In the same way, God seeks every single one of his people out of love and every one of them is precious to him. And then you have the parable of the prodigal son. And even though the son has despised the father and, and, and squandered this wealth, even though at once he was in love with this worldly wealth, the father welcomes the son home with love. Next, we have the parable of the dishonest manager in chapter 16 now, from verses 1 to 13. And this manager is dishonest and sinful, and yet he's commended for his shrewdness with money. For we should likewise use our money shrewdly for eternal priorities. And Jesus knew his hearers exactly and knew precisely what he needed to tell them, what he needed to preach. And the bottom line, if you have a look in chapter 16, verses 14 to 15, it says, The Pharisees who loved money heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Notice there the descriptor of the Pharisees, these religious leaders, they loved money. And Jesus puts his finger on this this live nerve of the Pharisees because the Pharisees, as the world does, they exalt money as an end in itself. But it never is. As we'll see in this parable, money used sinfully, as is the major sin given for this rich man here, is the very root of his sin. Is the very root of his sin. As Jesus says, what is highly exalted among men, what is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. And so Jesus tells this parable to awaken the Pharisees, to awaken all his hearers to eternal realities. It is not one's wealth, it's not one's status that matters in this life, but it's what is to come that matters. And as you, will, as you will read this, as you hear, as we go through this, this passage, you will see that prosperity in this life does not imply prosperity in the next. Likewise, difficulty and suffering in this life does not imply difficulty or suffering in the next. Now, there are some who argue that this is not actually a parable. You'll notice there at the heading in your NRV Bible, it leaves out the word parable. Uh, and, and some uh, argue this way because it doesn't mention the word parable. Jesus never tells us that it's a parable. And, and unlike the parables that we see in Scripture, Lazarus is mentioned. The name Lazarus and no one else, in, in none of the other parables is someone's name mentioned. And so there is thought that maybe this is Jesus telling a story which is not a parable or telling something that is actually true. However, as we look, you will see that the language of how this passage starts is actually quite similar to other parables, if if you read other parables. It's positioned at the end of other parables. It talks about realities that that do not seem to literally be true, as you will see in terms of of, uh, the rich man talking with Abraham. And and there are other parables mentioned in Scripture in which Jesus does not mention that it is a parable. But either way, whether it's a parable or not, and and that is for you to decide based on your reading of God's word, it's going to be preached this morning. And as we'll see, there are two main points that I have. 
And the first is the separation now, from verses 19 to 21, and the separation to come, from verses 22 to 31. But have a look with me at verses 19 to 21. The separation now. The separation now. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So we see here that we have two characters that Jesus introduces us to, and they are separated in this life by a few things. The first of which is their financial, financial status. One is rich, the other is poor. One is rich and it indicates that the man has an abundance of possessions and money. He has a lot of cash at the bank. The other, completely helpless, with nothing. A beggar, completely dependent on others for help. No resources, no worth, no money. Next we see that what separates them is their clothing. The rich man is dressed in, in purple and fine linen, and, and purple cloth was something that only the rich could afford. And yet the poor man Lazarus is covered in sores, presumably with little clothing as the dogs came and licked his sores. One in purple and fine linen, the other with rags. And the rich man, he's not subtle about his wealth. And there are plenty of people who are rich and who do not show it. But this man, he loves to flaunt his wealth. And we'll see here next, what separates him in this life is their living conditions. It says that the rich man lived in, in luxury, while the other, Lazarus, was lying near the gate of this rich man, covered in sores, and having these sores licked by dogs and starving from a lack of food. That word there, those words are living in luxury. Can be better translated as not only living in luxury, but with merriment and celebration. This man is not only living in luxury, but enjoying it and flaunting it. He had no cares that he did not fulfill. No wants that he did not indulge. No pleasures that he did not seek after. No tastes that he did not satisfy. Isn't there a small part of you that would love to live like this? Love to live without cares and worries? Not worry about the next paycheck? Not worry about, about providing for your family? Setting up a business? Running a business? Working hard at, at your employment? Having a comfortable life? Physically free from worry and physical need? What a life. What a life. And this is how the Pharisees would have been thinking. They probably would have been drooling in one sense as, they were, as, as Jesus was comparing these two and as they were thinking about the rich man. What a life. Because they were lovers of money. They associated money with God's blessing. If you were rich, that meant God had, had, had seen you with favour. He looked kindly upon you. He loved you and had blessed you. Sounds a bit like a gospel, a false gospel that is preached today by prosperity preachers. Like a Joel Osteen, or Creflo Dollar, or T.D. Jakes, Benny Hinn, Joyce Meyer, Paula White, Paula White, whoever it is. If you have God's favour, you will be rich. 
And if, you, if you're not rich, where's your faith? You don't have faith. And they would have thought that this rich man was in a perfect, prime position. Just like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus in chapter 18, two chapters over. And when Jesus declared that, that he had to give up everything because that was his idol before God, that was his God before the one true and living God, he went away sad. And when Jesus said that it was difficult, no, no even impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, they were baffled. They were baffled. For they said, who can, if a rich man can't, who can enter the kingdom of God? Who can enter the kingdom of God? And you compare this with the poor man. The poor man, he is living in abject poverty. He has absolutely nothing. And he is lying. He's not only far removed from this rich man, but he's actually lying at the gate of this rich man. So this rich man presumably would have seen him every time he came and went, came and went from his mansion. He would have seen this man, Lazarus, lying there in, in poverty, sick, with sores, with nothing. And maybe he would have looked out his window and still seen that man lying there. And yet his heart was closed against this man, Lazarus. This man, Lazarus, he cannot help himself. He's totally, completely, utterly at the mercy of others. And this rich man certainly did not give him that mercy he had sores there that the dogs licked. So not only is he lying down helpless, but the dogs are licking his sores. So presumably these sores are festering and putrid. It's disgusting. If he can't even stop the dogs from licking him, that's how helpless he is. And he's starving. That word there, longed, it means to intensely desire. He longed to even have the scraps that came from that man's table. As we know with Jesus' interaction with, 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 a, with another woman, a beggar. Oh, sorry, sorry, not a beggar, a Gentile. That even the dogs get the scraps that come from the master's table. Yet this man didn't. This man, Lazarus, did not get even the scraps. Can you imagine feeling like that? Because in this country, God has graciously given us an abundance of things. Stuff, but particularly here, food that we're thinking about. We do not starve. We do not hunger as this man hungered. Our bellies are filled, and even when we are hungry, we say, We're starving. We say, We're starving. I've said it. And yet, what do we do? We go open the fridge, or open the pantry, or see something lying there on the kitchen counter, even closer at reach, and we just take food. Or we go and cook up something. Or we ask someone else to cook up something for us. Or if we don't have something at home, what do we do? We go straight down to the supermarket where there's an abundance of food. And on special as well sometimes. It's hard for us to understand how helpless this man is. How helpless this man is. And if you notice here, as I said before, only this man is named. Only Lazarus is named. His name, Lazarus, in Hebrew is Eliezer. It means God is my help. God is my help. And when Jesus calls his name Lazarus, right? not the other Lazarus that we know so well, one of Jesus' close friends, but it means God is my help. 
For as we will see, even though this rich man, and even though others seem to not give this man help or show him even the smallest bit of mercy, we will see that God is his help. God is his help. And this brings up an important, an important application. Do you ever pass by others on the street who are helpless, whether it's in the city where there may be more, whether it's in the suburb, and you pass by a poor person begging for money, and you feel that inattention in you, do I give, do I not give, and, and, and do I have enough in my, honor, in my wallet, I only have a 50, what on earth am I going to do with that? I know this because I've had this exact same turmoil in my heart. And it's true that we cannot help every single person in every single circumstance. And yet, does your heart close up against that person? When you hear about the need of someone in church, for example, do you think, someone else will help them? That's okay, we've got a generous church. Let others help them. Do we close up our heart against those in need because that is what Jesus condemns here this rich man with an abundance of wealth did not give what it seems a single cent to this man and it doesn't matter whether you are rich or 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 comparatively less rich because even the even the widow gave her two mites even the widow gave her out of her neediness to give for the sake of others in Proverbs 28, 27, it says this, Whoever gives to the poor will not lack, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. Whoever despises his neighbor, Proverbs 14, 21, whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. It says elsewhere in Proverbs that he who gives to the poor lends to the Lord. When we give, we're not even giving money that's our own. We're giving money that's the Lord's anyway. So it just doesn't even make sense that we would hold it back and be stingy. Your attitude to the poor and those in need is an indication of your heart. An indication of your heart. And if that is you, if you close up your heart against others in need, repent. Repent. Repent, brothers and sisters. But praise God that I know you, brothers and sisters in Christ here. I know of your generosity. Even as Paul, if you read his letters, he says, I know you and your generosity. And that's what I'm saying to you this morning. I do know of your generosity. And that is why I also want to encourage you this morning to be generous and to give. And to see as soon as you know a need. And to ask others how they're going. And to be generous with what we have. May we not be like the rich man who closes his heart, but like Christ, who lavishes and gives for the sake of others. Now, this is not the main point of this parable, but it's an important application that I believe Jesus points at. But something else also that we can learn from this separation, this life, and this, and this first three verses here, is that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And we will see that as it comes to the separation that is to come. We often judge people by what they do or what possessions they have. As we will see, it is not whether, this, that, it's not whether or not the money that we have in this life that matters, but it's the state of our heart before God. 
It says in 2 Chronicles 16, it says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro across, across the earth, showing himself strong in support of the rich. No, of those whose heart is right with him. God gives help and support to those whose heart is right with him. He may not give deliverance in this life, as we see here with Lazarus, but he gives strength in that suffering and will deliver us in the life to come. And we also see here that the righteous may have much suffering in this life. The righteous may have much suffering in this life. If you are suffering, it is not because God hates you or God despises you. Yes, his hand, as it were, may seem to be against you. But if you're a Christian, his heart is always for you. We do not judge the Lord by his hand, ultimately speaking. Because we are just judging by what we see, but we judge him by his heart, ultimately speaking, if I can draw that distinction. And yes, there may be times that we look at our life and we see that we have sinned and the Lord is, is disciplining us for that. But we must always trace his heart. For Lazarus, we will see that the sufferings of this present life are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Romans 8, 18. And this is what we see next, the separation to come. The separation to come. Have a look with me at verses 22, uh, 22 to 26 first off. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to, to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted, and here you, here you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. What happens next highlights this great contrast in the ultimate destination of these two men. But one thing that we notice that they both had alike is that they both died. They both died. While, the, while, while Jesus highlights this great separation, this great distinction and difference between them, they have this one thing in common, that they both died. They both died. For death comes to all men. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for all men to die once. And after that comes the judgment. Ecclesiastes 3.19, which Danny read out for us, it says, For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so does the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts. It is all vanity. All people die, no matter how rich or poor or great or insignificant, how tall or small, there is no exception to this rule. However, it is what happens after they die that makes the difference. It's what happens after they die that makes the difference. And firstly, I want you to see the great comfort of heaven. You notice here that this poor man, it says in verse 22, this poor man is carried by the angels. Why, why carried by angels? 
1 Hebrews 1.14, it says that angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of God's children. Even the devil quotes Psalm 91 to Jesus, and he said he will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And so there is a care for God's people that we see in these verses. And there's a care for God's people, not only in this life, but we see here this, this tenderness that, that, that Jesus wants to illustrate, that God has for every single one of his people. Every single one of his people, that, that God, a loving God, sends caring hands to carry us safely to heaven. In Matthew 24, 31, we see, we, we see a beautiful picture of Christ's return. It says, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. The angels are sent out to gather the elect, not randomly, but deliberately. Every single one of them will come to heaven. Every single one of them will be, will be brought into God's care. But next, why Abraham? Why is he at Abraham's side? And where is Abraham? Well, Abraham was often seen in, by the Jews as a, as a model, a paragon of, of faith, a paragon of the father of faith, as it were. Even the Apostle Paul in Romans 4 uses him as a, as a, um, as a model for faith. And yet, the Jews often used Abraham as an assurance because they were physically descended from him that they also would be where Abraham was. And God said that he is God of, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so they knew with, with definite certainty that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were there. And that's where they hoped to also be. Why? Because they were descended from Abraham, physically speaking. In John 8, where Jesus is saying that if you sin, you're a slave to sin. It is just ludicrous to them. They, 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 said, they said, we are off, the offspring of, of Abraham and we've never been enslaved to anyone. Right, so it didn't even pass their mind that they wouldn't reach heaven in a sense. And though we're not told, presumably both men in this passage are Jews, because the rich man realizes who Abraham is. And because the, the poor man Lazarus is lying at this, this Jewish man's gate. But only one goes to Abraham's side. Only one has the same faith as of Abraham, who is counted righteous by that faith. Where is Abraham? Matthew 8 verse 11 says, this is Jesus speaking, I tell you many will come from the east and the west and they will recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Reclining at the table of the great feast in heaven. You know, this rich man, he would have, in one sense he would have, he would have longed for just more food. He'd already had plenty of his fill in this life with, with, with rich food. He would have thought, you know, heaven is just going to be pretty much the same, presumably. And yet he had no time for the God who is the master of that feast. But how much more would Lazarus have longed for that feast? How much more would he longed for that, that heavenly feast? Now the Bible says that we are to lay up treasures in heaven. We are to lay up treasures in in heaven, not on earth where things are, are destroyed or, or lost so easily or, you know, rust destroys or moths eat up or, or thieves break in and steal, but we are to set our heart on heaven. And that's the first thing we see here from this, this comfort of heaven. 
and what Jesus is bringing out, that we had to lay up treasures not on earth here, but in heaven. For the rich man laid up treasures on earth. That didn't get him very far. But we had to lay up treasures in heaven. We are to make our priorities heaven's priorities, God's priorities. We are to set our heart in heaven, not on here, on earth. But next we see where this rich man went. Lazarus had gone to Abraham's side, reclining with Abraham at the great feast in heaven. But this rich man, where did he go? And this is where we see this, this separation that happens. In fact, not only in, from one sense, from what we see of, of, of this rich man and poor man in this life, there was a great separation. And yet we will see that there is an infinitely greater separation that exists between these two men in the life to come. This separation is far, far greater, but the roles are flipped and reversed. Have a look with me at verses 22 to 25 again. I want these words to stick in our heads. Second part of verse 22. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called him, Father Abraham, have, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and, and cool my tongue because I'm in agony. In this fire, the rich man here, unlike Lazarus, has died, has been buried, and is in hell. And unlike, unlike the uh, un, sorry, unlike Lazarus, he is in suffering, while Lazarus is enjoying that great Sabbath rest that the Bible speaks of, this paradise that Jesus promises, this 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 great marriage feast. He is in suffering. He is in suffering and agony. And the words used there mean the pains of torment and agony and burnings. These are not words to be taken lightly. And there is such agony here. There is such agony here. The Bible says elsewhere that there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you ever been in such agony that you gnash your teeth together? And where you just weep from the suffering? Because that's where this rich man is. And he sees Abraham and Lazarus afar off, not in his suffering, but in the kingdom of heaven where he was not. How sad to live such a life of ease and comfort in this life. Trusting in the abundance of your riches. While in the life to come, this is all you have to, to endure. How does this rich man respond? Well, he cries out to Abraham for mercy. But it is too late. Notice that he doesn't even speak to Lazarus. He doesn't even speak to Lazarus. He doesn't even say, I'm sorry, Lazarus. Because hell, everyone in hell will realize that they deserve it. They will realize that they deserve it. Because notice that this rich man does not say, why am I here? He doesn't, he doesn't plead innocent and say, what on earth, I don't deserve to be here. It's like the, the thief on the cross who says, we, where he rebukes the other thief and says, we deserve this. We are justly condemned by this man. Jesus is not. He doesn't even speak to Lazarus. He probably doesn't even know his name. 
And he orders, he says to Abraham to order Lazarus like a servant to dip his finger in a bit of cool water to, to cool his tongue. To alleviate even the smallest amount of suffering. Even the smallest amount of suffering will be desired by all those who endure hell. Jesus doesn't mince his words here. He doesn't water it down because the stakes are so high. The stakes are so high. We see here a great reversal which should have shocked, would have shocked Jesus' listeners. Where the rich man had abundant wealth, now Lazarus had an eternal inheritance and a crown of glory. Where Lazarus had nothing, now the rich man is robbed of every little bit of resources or wealth that he had. Gone. Where the rich man was clothed in, in purple and fine linen, now Lazarus is clothed in the white robes of Christ's perfect righteousness. Where Lazarus was in rags, now the rich man was naked and exposed before the eyes of the God to whom he had to give an account. Where the rich man had dined and lived in splendor, now Lazarus did as he reclined beside Abraham in the kingdom of heaven. And while Lazarus had been in poverty and suffering, now the rich man lived in torment in Hades. Not only is there a great reversal, but this new state is infinitely greater than the one before. Everything good the rich man had is infinitely greater for Lazarus in heaven. And as great as Lazarus' suffering was in this life, it will be infinitely greater. It was infinitely greater for the rich man in Hades and for all who do not trust in Jesus Christ. Does that not make you gasp? Does not, does not that make your heart tear in two directions at once with the, with the comfort and joy of heaven, but also with the sorrow and agony of, where, of what God has saved us from? Does this not pull your heart in two different ways? It should make us, it should make us cry with the joy of heaven and with the agony of hell that God has saved us from. And does, not, does it not make you gasp that there are so many who live this life in such ease and comfort while they are deadened and blinded, blinded to spiritual realities, heavenly and hell realities? Is this you? Is this you? Do you trust in the abundance of your riches? Do you trust in something other than Christ to get you to heaven? For indeed, the Bible mocks such people as fools. Psalm 52 verse 7 says, See the man, see the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his destruction. He sought refuge in his destruction. That's how closely the Bible lines trust in anything else aside from God. So we have seen here not only the, the comfort of heaven, but the anguish of hell. 
And thirdly, we see this great chasm between heaven and hell. Have a look with me at verse 26. And besides all this, Abraham speaking, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot. Not will not, not may not, cannot. Nor can anyone cross over from there to us, no matter how much you want it. Cannot. Cannot. Not able. Not possible. There is this infinite chasm between heaven and hell. A chasm that no one can breach, no one can climb. In this life, some can, and when we hear about these stories of people who come from abject poverty and they come to riches and the world applauds them. Well done. Well done. And yet there's nothing about that in the life to come after death. There's no climbing the ladder to heaven, no second chances, no scalable ladders. But indeed, there is an infinite, unscalable distance between heaven and Hades. Why? Two reasons. The depth of the sin and the complete holiness of God. The depth of sin and the complete holiness of God. And because of that, there is this infinite chasm that no one can make their way over. I want you to imagine that you're standing at a canyon. A canyon. And you are standing right on the edge of that cliff edge. And you are looking out from one side of the canyon. There's this great canyon to the other. Now, does the first thought that go in your head as you look out over this, this great deep valley <clears throat> and this unjumpable distance, does the first thought that go into your head, I could make that. I could do that. Might, might need a bit of a run up, but I can do that. No. It just doesn't even enter your mind. It doesn't even enter your mind. And that's the exact same way Time's an infinite amount that we should see this infinite, unscalable distance between heaven and hell. And when you are presenting the gospel to people, this is what they must see. The futility of mankind and their sin. The futility of mankind, indeed their sin. And our sin by nature before we were saved. For there is only one who has scaled that distance. There's only one who jumps that distance. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one mediator. There's only one who comes between both parties. And resolves their enmity. Only Jesus can restore peace between God and mankind. Just as surely as there is one God, there is one mediator. John 1.51 says, And Jesus said to him, one of his disciples, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This harkens back to Jacob's dream in the Old Testament in Genesis where, where he had a vision and he saw angels descending and ascending, ascending on a ladder 
between, this, this, between heaven and, and earth. And only Jesus. And Jesus calls himself this ladder. Jesus calls himself this ladder. He's the only one who can bring us to God. Colossians 1.20 says, And through Jesus, God, speaking about God here, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus in one hand takes holy God and in the other hand takes sinful man and he unites the two by the blood of his cross. He's the only one who takes away sin. He's the only one who takes us from heading down that road to destruction and places us on the path to life. He is the narrow gate. And if you are outside of Christ here this morning... Flee to Christ. Flee to Christ. For there is no other refuge. There is no other hope. But in Jesus Christ. Lastly, we see here the sufficiency of Scripture to save. Have a look with me at verses 27 to 31. And this is what the rich man says next. After he's realised that his, his state then is, is hopeless... He says this, verse 27 onwards. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house. Sorry, send, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, But if, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone arises from the dead. Note here that the rich man still treats Lazarus like a servant. This rich man still treats Lazarus as a servant. And now that he knows that he is hopeless, his, his own situation is hopeless, he, he doesn't want his brothers to be there. He doesn't want his five brothers to be there. Because this man has an awakened reality to, the, to his own sin and the penalty of God for that sin. And so he pleads with Abraham to send Lazarus to warn his brothers to be, to be raised from the dead and to go back to his brothers. But Abraham's answer is very important. He says they already have the Old Testament scriptures. If they do not believe that, they would not believe it if Lazarus or anyone else would rise from the dead. There was another Lazarus who rose from the dead. If you read the account in John, the Jewish leaders, they still didn't believe in Jesus. Even when Jesus himself rose from the dead, they still persisted in trying to shut this down. The Jews failed to believe. And why does Abraham say this? Because mankind is spiritually dead, they are, they are blind to the truths of Scripture. They are unable to savingly believe in God unless God does a work of regeneration on their heart. Because if their sin blinds them to the Word of God, what Abraham says here is Moses and the prophets, why would they suddenly be able to see if someone rises from the dead? They had whole accounts of God's working to save His people. So why would they believe if someone is raised from the dead, 
What does this teach us? We must trust in the sufficiency of the word of God. We must trust in the word of God and the spirit of God because the power of God is not ultimately in miracles and signs. They are not the end in and of itself. They were merely to point to the teaching and to attest to the teaching of the apostles and the prophets and to Christ himself. No, we must trust in the sufficiency of God's word and we must always pray that we and others would be awakened to these truths that we have here this morning. For there is a great separation, yes, in this life, but ultimately that doesn't matter. The physical status of some of their wealth, their riches, that doesn't matter. But what matters is the separation to come. May God awaken us to these spiritual realities even more, that we would live always conscious, always conscious, that we, by God's grace and by Christ, who spans that gap, are no longer headed for hell, but for this glorious heaven above. At the side of Abraham, seeing the face of Christ. Let me pray. Almighty God, we praise you. We praise you. We thank you for Christ. He is the only mediator, the only one who reconciles us to you. Oh God, please awaken us to these truths. Forgive us for being so worldly minded. Forgive us for being too taken up with the cares of this world and not with spiritual and eternal realities. Help, help us to set our mind on things above, where Christ is seated at your right hand. Lord, awaken us. Awaken us to these realities that we may always think on these things and give you all the praise and the glory. Oh, precious God, for any here this morning who do not know you, Lord, we pray, please, please, Awaken them to the sufferings of hell, Lord, that is to come. Awaken them to the sufferings of hell, a very present and true reality that is to come, Lord. But do not awaken them alone, O Lord, to these, these terrifying things. But help them, Lord. Give them eyes to see the beauty and all-sufficiency of Christ, who can save and does save and is willing to save all who come to him in repentance and faith. Oh, precious God, please, we pray these things in the strong and mighty name of Christ. Amen.